Well, in December of 1811, uh, a baby was born into slavery in Lexington, Kentucky. His mother named him Lewis. Uh, when the boy was 10 years old, his owner, who also happened to be a Presbyterian minister, traded him for two carriage horses. Two carriage horses. That was young Lewis Hayden's value, according to the minister. In his 20s, Lewis married a fellow slave named Esther. They had a son together, but a short time later, his wife and son were sold to someone else, and he never saw them again. Several years later, Lewis Hayden married again, and this time he married a woman named Harriet. He took in Harriet and her son Joseph and soon began making plans to escape to the north because he feared that he would lose a second family. Within a couple years of his marriage, Lewis Hayden was introduced to another pastor. Fortunately for him, this pastor had deep moral conviction and had become involved in the Underground Railroad. Pastor Calvin Fairbank soon worked with Lewis to come up with a plan. Selecting a cold and rainy night to limit the number of people that they would pass on the road, Fairbank and a teacher from Vermont named Delia Webster loaded up a carriage. They covered the faces of Lewis Hayden and his family with flour to disguise them, and they headed for Ohio. Once across the river, they were aided by other abolitionists before eventually ending up in Canada. When Reverend Fairbank and his companion arrived back in the South, they were arrested. Fairbank and his companion received 15-year uh, prison sentences for their uh, decision to help the Hayden family reach freedom. Once in uh, Canada, Lewis and his family eventually made their way to Detroit and then on to Boston. Hayden began uh, speaking publicly and organizing events for the American Anti-Slavery Society. And when he learned about Reverend Fairbank's prison sentence, he raised money to purchase his release. And so Fairbank only ended up spending or, or serving four years of his 15-year sentence. Lewis Hayden's important work continued, helping in any way that he could to secure the freedom of slaves. In fact, following the Civil War, Hayden was elected by his peers to serve as a representative from Boston to the Massachusetts State Legislature. It's a beautiful story, being rescued from slavery by Reverend Fairbank and then rescuing his rescuer from prison, giving back to society, helping bring freedom to countless others. But I want you to imagine for a moment, if you can, that there was a plot twist earlier in the story. Imagine that when the Hayden family arrives in Canada, completely free, no fear of being arrested and sent back to the South, saved out of slavery, almost completely by the generosity of another. Imagine for a moment that when they get to the safety of Canada, Lewis Hayden starts to miss Kentucky. He starts to miss waking up every day in service of another. He misses the slave life. He discovers that freedom isn't all that great. It's not really his thing. And so he tells his wife, 
honey, pack up your stuff. We're heading back to Lexington. We're going to be slaves again. Of course, it's almost unthinkable. But just hang out in that feeling for a moment. What would Reverend Fairbank have thought if he heard that this guy who he gave up his own freedom to save decided to head back into slavery? Just soak up that tension. You might find that a helpful illustration of what Paul is accusing the Galatian Christians of. They have been rescued, saved, set free, delivered from slavery at such a great cost. Their deliverer literally gave up his life for their freedom. And then they are abandoning their freedom. They're heading right back into slavery. They got a taste of freedom, but they're afraid of it. It's not comfortable. It's different from anything that they've ever known. And so they are easily fooled into going right back into the slavery from where they came. This morning, we're going to be focusing on Galatians chapter 3, entering the first part of Galatians chapter 3. Chapter 2 ended with this declaration that if, if you or I could be made righteous, if we could be righteous before God by obedience to the law, then Christ died for nothing. That same tension will continue in our text for today. Are we justified? Are we saved? Are we made right with God by good works or by faith in Christ alone? And Paul's argument, of course, is that if we keep trying to be made right and to stay right with God by good works, then what Jesus did was all done for nothing. Jesus died in vain. From Galatians chapter 3, Starting in verse 1. This is God's word to us. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So I ask again, does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by works of the law or by your believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then. Those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God, because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse 
for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Uh, Lord, your word is true, and this message of what Jesus has done for us is so good and so freeing. So give us faith to believe this good news today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I mentioned to Angela this week that in, in one sense, preaching through Galatians is a bit of a challenge because Paul, throughout this letter, reaffirms the same message in about a hundred different ways. And of course, that continuous message is that Jesus has done it all. Jesus has done everything, that we can't add to what Jesus has done for us. And that if we try to add anything to what Jesus has done, it's no longer good news. But Paul is doing in our text what a good teacher or a good preacher does. He focuses on the main thing, the main point, and then he illustrates it and restates it and reframes it and describes it and shines a light on it from a hundred different angles. And so in our text today, Paul continues to drive home his main point. And as we Consider these verses, I want to share five thoughts that are central to our Christian faith, central to the life of the Christian. And the first one is this, the core of our message is Christ crucified. Verse 1 says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Paul is a little bit blunt here. He, you can hear sort of the frustration in his voice over what's taken place. Remember, there were false teachers saying that not only do you need Jesus in order to be made right with God, in order to be saved from your sin, you don't just need Jesus, you also need to check these boxes, jump through these hoops, accomplish these things. And Paul asks, who has bewitched you? Who has deceived you in such an evil way? Who has cast a spell on you? Before your very eyes... Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. He says, I very clearly preached, placarded, proclaimed, illustrated for you the message of Christ and him crucified. The, the truth that by death, by his death and by his resurrection, Jesus accomplished everything. Jesus did it all. And here you are buying into this lie that there is more that can be done. That there is something else to do. The core of our message is Christ crucified. The very center of what it means to be Christian is that Jesus Christ died in your place for your sin. That he accomplished it all. That you need not go through this life wondering of what God thinks about you or how you stand in relation to God. Because Jesus Christ was crucified for you. He shed his blood for you. The core of the message is not how do we live. It's not what must we do. The, the message is what Christ has done. He said the, the same thing in his letter to the Corinthian Christians. He said, for I decided to know nothing among you other than Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so every service, every message, every sermon must proclaim Christ crucified and point to the risen Lord Jesus Christ. 
I've told you this story before from this pulpit. I'll tell it again because it reminds me of how important this singular soul message of Christ crucified is. On Sunday, April 9th, 2017, I preached on Palm Sunday at the church that I served in Minot. And I'll never forget that sermon because I preached on the tension of Palm Sunday, on how people who shouted Hosanna one day as Jesus entered Jerusalem likely were some of those who also shouted crucify him just a handful of days later. After I preached that sermon, I was standing outside the back doors of the sanctuary, and my friend John came and found me as he did every time I preached. John always had something encouraging to say to me. John was in his, in his 60s, and he and I always had a, a special friendship. He had been a history teacher, and my degree is in history, and we had worked together uh, for a few years uh, at a Christian school, and John had spent several years as a lay pastor in a small congregation, and so he always went out of his way to encourage me in ministry. And I can't remember the exact words that John said to me after my sermon that day, but it was something along the lines of this. He said, I really, I really needed that message this morning. The very last words of the sermon that I shared that week were from Psalm 68. I quoted Psalm 68 to end the sermon. And Psalm 68 says this, From the sovereign Lord comes escape from death. Think about those words. From the sovereign Lord comes escape from death. It's the promise of God as Savior, the promise of Christ crucified for sinners, the promise of resurrection hope for all who believe. That was, was the last sermon that my friend John ever heard. The following evening, Monday, uh, April 10th, I found myself at the intensive care unit at Trinity Hospital praying with John's wife and his family because he had had a massive brain bleed. I remember getting to go in and hold John's hand, and I saw the fear in John's eyes. I prayed with him and cried with him. Then several days later, I preached the gospel, the message of Christ crucified at John's funeral service. John had deep faith in Christ, but I'm so thankful, and to this day, I'm so thankful that on his last Sunday morning, I left him with the hope of eternity, the hope of escape from death. And I'm so thankful that I gave him on that Sunday Christ crucified rather than a list of things that he should do better to make God happier. Rather than a self-help sermon or a motivational speech, I'm so glad that John's last sermon was one that pointed his eyes to the promise of God for him to Jesus Christ crucified for his sin in his place. This is our message. This message of Christ crucified is the only thing that separates us from the world around us. The, the message that Jesus Christ died for you in your place. And he rose again ensuring that all who believe may have eternal life. This is the core of our message. And if my preaching ever stops beating this continual 
rhythmic drumbeat of Christ crucified, then it's time to find a pastor who will. The next thing we see is this. Number two, your justification is a result at calling you through the preaching of the gospel. Your justification is a result of the Holy Spirit calling you through the preaching of the gospel. Verse 2 says this, I, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? You were saved, you were forgiven by relying on faith, by means of the Spirit. But now, do you really think that you can do the rest of it on your own? That the rest is up to you? Paul says, are you so foolish? And then if we jump down to verse 8, it says, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. We encounter that word justification or justified again. I want to give you a good working definition, and, and that's uh, the, the working definition of justification is this. Justification is when God declares us not guilty of our sin, credits us with Christ's righteousness, and looks upon us as if we had never sinned. And so we are justified, we are made right with God, not by being good enough. Not based upon our morality or our performance or our obedience or our own personal holiness, but by God's grace through faith in Christ. But how does one come to possess that faith? And that's a really valid question. How does one come to, to have the faith to receive what Christ offers? And scripture thankfully answers that question for us. We see it, for example, in John chapter 6, Jesus says... That nobody can, can receive what he offers. Nobody can come to him unless God draws them. And then we get more clarification in Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10 says that it is through the hearing of the gospel, when the gospel is preached, it is through hearing that gospel that faith comes. And, and so we, we have in our text today that we receive by believing what we hear. The core message of Christ crucified for your sin is preached and you receive that message believing that Christ died not only in a generic sense, but that Christ died for you, that he went to the cross with you on his mind. And the result of believing that message is, Paul says, justification. A legal declaration that your sins are forgiven, that you are right with God, the Holy Spirit calls you through the preaching of the gospel, the result is justification. And of course, Paul's point here is that you are made right with God, not by your works, but by faith. And that brings us to point number three, that you may rely on faith or you may rely on good works, but not both. Verse 9 says, So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law, are under a curse. This is true for all people. There are essentially two options when it comes to your standing before God. Either you stand before God based upon what you have done, your performance, your goodness, your righteousness, or based upon what Christ has done. Those are the two 
options. What we discover in God's word is that salvation is not a partnership. It's not Jesus doing his part and me doing my part and together we make a good team. It's not how it works. Jesus has done it all. But it's important to recognize that Paul's message to the Galatians isn't primarily about coming to faith for the first time. Paul's writing to Christians. And so he says, he tells us, he gives us uh, information not only about coming to faith for the first time, but how we stay right with God. Paul essentially says there are two types of people. We might be tempted to categorize people based upon the way that this world does. The world uses categories like good and evil. And oftentimes good, uh, the good people are those that you like and you agree with. And evil are people that you don't like and don't agree with. But the Bible does something that this world can't stand. It categorizes people in a completely different way. Not good and evil, but those who are living by faith and those who are living by the flesh. Or those living by faith and those living by works of the law. The, the entirety of the Christian life from the moment you first believe until on that great day when you die. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, you are swallowed up by life. The entire journey is one of faith from first to last. And that brings me to my fourth point, And that's this. Your only hope is in the righteousness of another credited to you. Verse 6 says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. This might be the most scandalous part of the gospel for our human minds. By faith, God declares us not guilty of our sin. But the Christian faith, Christian salvation, isn't simply having our sins forgiven, wiped away, but something else being put in their place. And that something is the perfect goodness and righteousness of Christ, his perfection. By faith, God takes my sin and makes it Christ's. Think about that. By faith, God takes all of my sin and makes it Christ's. And he takes Jesus' perfection, his perfect righteousness, and he makes it mine. Imagine that you pull up your bank account on your phone tomorrow or maybe in the middle of the sermon if you get bored, and where your balance would normally be, it just says the word full. Wouldn't that be great? Your account is full. And so you go to the car dealership tomorrow and you buy a vehicle and you wait a few days for the transaction to clear and you check your balance again and it still just says full. No matter how much you spend or how foolish or reckless you are, the account balance never comes down. It just stays where it is. It just says full. That's what we have by faith. When our account is reconciled each day, where we might normally look to see if our good outweighed our bad, instead, in, in Christ, we simply see the word righteous. Why? Because Jesus died for all of your bad, for all of your sin. And when you believe, Scripture says, Paul goes to great lengths to prove to us that Jesus' perfection is credited to you as righteousness. This isn't a Paul thing. This begins all the way back in Genesis, the beginning of the story. This is the way that God operates. 
the problem with being human is that we vastly underestimate how bad we are in comparison with the holy God. We compare ourselves to other people. And you'll always find someone worse than you. Many of us don't have to look very far, right? It's part of what it means to be human. We'll always find somebody worse than us. And so we look at them, we focus on them, we point out all the things that they do wrong so that we feel better about ourselves. But the reality is we aren't the judge. And we don't get to set the standard. God is the judge. And God judges us against his perfect will and his perfect plan and his perfection. And we all fall short according to that standard. God doesn't judge me against my neighbor. He judges me against his standard. And as long as we look at those people around us, we will always underestimate how bad we actually are. And so as people who know the gospel, we rejoice. We rejoice in the promise that God knew how bad we are. And he still sent his son to live a perfect life, to die in our place. On the cross, Jesus took all of our sin and has exchanged it, traded it, for all of Christ's righteousness. That's the gospel, that he credits it to us. Fills our account. Our account says full, righteous, complete, perfect. Just as if we had never sinned. Just as if we had always perfectly obeyed. That is our hope. That's what scripture teaches. And so the final thought that I want to leave us with today is this. That the righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. Faith isn't just part of your story. It's not just one of many attributes that come together to define who you are. For for the Christian, faith is life. Faith is oxygen. It's the substance of who we are. It's that which defines our identity. Because it is by faith that we lay hold of Christ. I want you to hear those words today. It is by faith that we lay hold of Christ and all that he has done for us. And this life of faith changes everything. It changes how I view myself, how I view my neighbor, how I view God's law. Think about it this way. Because Jesus has redeemed me, because Jesus has set me free, and because I've received the the Holy Spirit by faith, I get to do good works out of love for God and my neighbor. I'm living a life of faith. I'm agreeing with what God has declared to be true, that I could never be righteous, that I could never get to heaven by being good enough, but only by believing. And so then I am set free. I don't have to prove anything to God. I'm free to simply do what God has said out of love for him, out of love for my neighbor. The righteous will live by faith. I want you to consider why Paul places such great emphasis in this passage on the Holy Spirit. If the problem in these Galatian churches is that false teachers are deceiving people into believing that obeying those Jewish regulations is required for them to be saved, why is there so much emphasis in our text on the Holy Spirit? And I think we discover this, that the only reason that you are right with God is because of 
the Holy Spirit. Because God has called you. And the only way that we stay right with God, the only way that we live in relationship with God is as God empowers us through the Holy Spirit. You didn't choose God. That's the reality. You did not choose God. And if it feels like you did, if you're arguing with me on the inside right now, the only reason that you even feel that is because the Holy Spirit was at work drawing you and summoning you to himself. If you feel a desire for spiritual things within you, that doesn't come from you. That's not your own inner voice. That's the work of God drawing you through the Holy Spirit. You never graduate beyond Christ crucified. Because the work of the Holy Spirit is drawing us back every day to the cross. Every single day, the, the, the work that the Holy Spirit does in our heart and in our life is drawing us back to Christ crucified. Not onto something deeper and better and bigger. There is nothing deeper, nothing better, nothing bigger than Christ crucified. Paul tells us that if we ever move beyond the message of Christ crucified, we've left the faith. We've abandoned that for which we were made. We've walked away from our only shot at true life. Jesus died for your sin. He took your sin upon himself. He, he has given you his righteousness. Now that you're free, don't go back to being a slave. Don't give yourself back over to a life of trying to improve upon what Jesus has done. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Believe this good news today, that it is all by faith. And continue living each day in repentance and faith, believing this promise. The core of our message is Christ crucified for you in your place. And that is enough. Let's pray. Our God, we confess that we are prone to wander. We are prone to doubt. We are prone to underestimate our own sin and overestimate our ability to do what is right. Lord, we confess that we have sinned against you in any and every way imaginable, that we have certainly not loved you with our whole heart. We haven't loved our neighbor as you have taught us. We've loved ourselves. We've loved our, our comfort. We've loved our sense of power. We've loved to put our own interests first. And so we humbly repent and we ask that you would forgive us. Give us a glimpse of what it looks like to just rest in the promise of Christ crucified. We thank you that when Christ was on the cross, he bore all of our sin, past, present, and future. Help us to believe that today. And we thank you that when you see us, you don't see us as just a forgiven sinner, but as the righteousness of Christ, as if we had always obeyed. Give us faith to truly believe that what your word says is true, not just in a generic sense, but it is true for us. And help us to rest in those promises. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.